You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Hello, man. Good morning, Harvest. As you uh, have a seat, uh, go ahead and open with me to Mark chapter 5. We're going to jump back into our Vintage Jesus series this morning. And, and uh, I hope you all had a, a good Christmas and a good New Year. It's kind of weird to think that New, Year was, New Year's Day was only Wednesday, right? Um, my whole schedule has been thrown off this week. But, uh, so this morning, like I said, we're going to be jumping onto our, our Vintage Jesus series as we walk through the gospel of, of Mark. And so if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 5, if you need a Bible, go ahead and just put your hand in the air. We'd love to get a Bible into your hand so you could track with us this morning. If for some reason at home you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, keep this one. This is our gift to you. We want you to be able to have uh, a copy this morning. So as you're getting to that text, I want to I wanna ask you something. And it's honestly a question that, that I struggle with. Uh, and I struggle to answer sometimes, and it's kind of embarrassing to admit that, but um, when was the last time you personally called out to God in faith? What does it mean to, to come to God in faith? And I think we can all offer a pretty simple, like, oh, it means, you know, whatever. You could throw out a million different answers, but what does it actually mean? <laughs> and the text this morning um, actually has so much to do with life and death and faith and belief and, uh, and 10 years ago, I was actually teaching at a private Christian school in Central Florida. And uh, like every uh, private Christian school, we had chapel um, once a week. And so one in particular, we had like an all-grades chapel. Um, and, uh, and the focus was on great faith. And, and during the chapel, uh, the text that was, was being taught is Mark chapter 5. And, uh, and I don't remember much of it, but one thing has actually stuck into my mind. And, and the, the person that was, that was giving the talk or the, the whatever you want to call it at that point, um, here's a statement that was made. Did you know that you have the power of God within you? And did you know that with enough faith, you can literally raise people from the dead? You can literally raise people from the dead. Now, I freaked out, okay, because, yeah, all right, I freaked out. Like, it was an interesting rest of the day walking my students through what does that mean and, and what does that look like and, 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 you know, walking through students through that statement. And, yeah, this, this passage in Mark chapter 5 contains two great examples and two great models of great faith. But here's the thing. We must remember that in these moments, the power and the work is accomplished by Jesus, and so here's the, here's the one. One great thing that came out of, of what I would consider a really interesting day was the discussion of faith and what faith looks like and where do we turn in a crisis of faith? Where do we turn in whatever situation? Like we, we know it was beyond the normal trials of life. Like we, we had no other option but to cry out to God, right? What does that look like and where do we turn? And, and this is kind of where we can actually over-spiritualize. It's like, well, Andy, I cry out to God every single day. Okay, that's, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, like, when's the last time you had such a crisis of belief that you could do nothing else except to cry out to God in faith and ask him to do something that you could never hope to do? That's the question, what I mean. And so we usually end up doing that in difficult places in our lives, right? We, we usually do that um, 
during times of loss or, or times of grief. We do that during times when our world is shaken and everything seems to be falling apart. That's when we cry out to God. We cry to God in faith. And actually, the other day, I had, I had lunch with, with two guys. One's a, a believer. One's a claimed agnostic. And, and uh, after lunch, I came back to the office, and I kept prepping for, for this text. And I started thinking, in a time of crisis, where would these two guys turn? In a time of crisis, in a time of crisis of faith, where would these two guys turn? To what or to whom would they turn? And so this is when I start thinking, uh, you know, this is when I start thinking about how much loss we've seen in our church and in society over the past several months. And, and I, I think that, like, where do we turn in a time of crisis and in a time of loss? And so I think a, a believer undoubtedly would say the Lord, right? Well, I, turn, I turn to the Lord, but those who don't know Jesus nor want Jesus, who and what do they turn to for a sense of hope? And so this is where we're going to look at two very similar yet distinct pictures of what life-changing faith looks like. So, so kind of to recap quick before we read Mark chapter 5, um, what, what has happened up to this point in the life of Christ? He was announced by John the Baptist. He was baptized. He was tempted in the wilderness. He began his earthly ministry. He, he called the 12 disciples. He was a preacher, a teacher, and a healer, Right? He controlled nature by calming the sea in the midst of a storm, and, and he controlled the spiritual realm by casting out demons. And so now people going up to, that was all, that's all first four chapters, four and, first four and a half chapters of Mark, right? And so now people are starting to hear this man Jesus and what he is doing, and they are responding. So Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21, it says this, And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, and that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and he, Jesus, went with him. And a crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather was getting worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even just his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And a disciple said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And, and when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took his child's father and mother and those who were walking with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. 
Let's pray before we dive into this text. Father God, we love you. God, I just pray that, that in the midst of a, of a common text, God, what, what people who've been in church any amount of time would just read and pass over so quickly, God, let us just stop in these moments, God, and realize that this is not normal. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our, our ears and our hearts to see the beauty of Christ in this text. God, that we could see only what God can do. God, that, that he brings the dead to life and he heals the unhealable. God, we just pray that you would just open our eyes to this text. Let us not skip over this text. It's something that we already know, God, but let us sit in the glory of Jesus in the coming moments. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to walk through this text, and then at the very end, we're just going to give some application for what that means for us this morning. So that's the best way to walk through this gospel text. And so let's go back to it. So we can see, right? Jesus crossed again from healing the man with the demon. He crossed and got in the boat and crossed to the other side. And the great crowd gathered, and he went. And the first encounter this man has, or Jesus had, is with a man named Jairus, right? And so Jesus, having crossed the sea, was followed by the great crowd, which might be annoying because I hate crowds, right? Jairus was a was a few things. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was respected and he was dignified. But here's, here's what we see happen. He pushed his way through the crowd in order to get to Jesus, right? He, he didn't come to Jesus nonchalantly. He, he could have said, excuse me, out of my way, and people would have recognized who he is, and they would have been like, oh, it's Jairus, let's move. But he didn't. He, he didn't come to Jesus nonchalantly. He actually fought his way through the crowd. And he, he went to Jesus and he pleaded with him to come with him. And the, the text, notice, it doesn't say that Jesus had a nice conversation and slipped in a request like we often do. We're like, oh, I, need, I can't ask him right away, so i got to like talk to him for 15 minutes and kind of get the awkwardness out of the way. And then, oh, by the way. No, see, Jairus, Jairus didn't do that. He was, this wasn't a, hey, could, do you think he could help me kind of thing? But we can see he was pleading. This was a begging, like, Jesus, if, if you don't come, Jesus, if you can't help me, Jesus, like, I have nothing and no one else to turn to. And so we can see in this text that the request wasn't only from him, but it was for him, but also for his, his daughter. He knew the dire straits his daughter was in. He knew that she only had mere hours to live, and he ran out of options. So on his knees, he went and begged Jesus. Verse 23, I love it, it says, he implored him earnestly. He begged on his knees. When was the last time? I think the last time I heard a beg was from my child. Please! But that's the picture that we get of a small child to their parent. A begging, a pleading. Like, you don't understand. Like, I need this. And he asked Jesus, Jairus asked Jesus just to come and Look, I just know if you just lay hands on my daughter, if you just touch my daughter, she will be healed. And here's the thing, I feel for Jairus because as a, as a, you know, as a dad, like he was pleading for his little girl and being the dad of a little girl, I can tell you there, there isn't anything I would do, not just for my daughter, for any of my kids though, right? That I wouldn't do if they were on the brink of death. And I think that that's the true statement for all of us. There's nothing we wouldn't do for our children knowing they were on the brink of death. Whatever it takes, whatever lack of whatever humility it takes, whatever throwing down our pride it takes, whatever, whatever it takes, we're, we're going to do it. And see, unlike Jairus, it, it's, it's okay now in, in, 
in our culture for men to show emotion, right? It's actually like applauded, like, oh, he's crying, he's a real man, right? That's like men showing emotion, like to beg and to plead for things, right? And so this is the true nature of desperation, and it can't be missed in Josh's actions. A religious leader on his knees in front of this rabbi that many Pharisees didn't even consider to be the Messiah, that they didn't consider him to be anything outside of a kook, Josh probably weeping, begging for a healer to come, speaks volumes about the situation Jairus was in. I even think back to the Gospel of Luke and the prodigal son, and how we always note that it wasn't normal that the father of the prodigal son ran to his child. We always say, well, that's, that's not normal. Again, this isn't normal. This isn't like today where you can come and it's okay, it's culturally acceptable. This was Jairus, a Pharisee, someone who's respected and dignified, coming and laying bare at the feet of Jesus saying, help me. And so this is different than the other leaders at the synagogue. Jairus either heard of the great things that Jesus was doing and wanted to believe, or he felt that he had no other option or both. Right, we, 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 see that some, like, like, we see that some Pharisees, they wanted to know more about Jesus, but they would only come to him in the quiet of the night where their reputation wouldn't be questioned. That's John chapter 3 and Nicodemus. See, Jairus came full bore and went to the feet of Jesus, and, and some, some Pharisees, they want to figure it all out first. Some of us, we always want to figure it all out first. We want to know every little moment and every little thing I have to know. We want to figure it all out first. We want all the facts. But here's the thing. In this moment, in, in a crisis of faith, Jairus did not care. See, some, some Pharisees couldn't even see past their own pride and their pride forcing the question, the work of Jesus. And so he knew he had no other options and they both ended up seeing Jesus for who he truly was. We see that Jairus ended up seeing Jesus for who he was, the salvific son of God. And so Jesus simply went with Jairus. Now here's the, you can write this down a lot because I love this. I want you to note that Jairus was dependent and urgent. And in return, Jesus was simple and immediate. Jairus was dependent. He's, I need you, Jesus, and you need to come now. All you, need to, you don't need to do anything crazy. You just need to touch my daughter. And Jesus was simple and said, okay, and got up and went. There was no haggling. There was no coercion. Jesus heard the heart of a broken father and went with him. By the way, this is what prayer does for us today. It brings us to the feet of Jesus that we can cry out to our Father saying, help me, I have no other option. I have nowhere else to go, but I do know that you are the one that can make it right. So let me follow you and let me know you. And in turn, God, respond to us in how you ever will. And we can see that, that the great crowd followed him and thronged about, right? On his way to the little girl, the crowd grew, it thronged. I love how the ESV translates this word thronged, because if you really look it up, it means it grew and it pressed in, right? It grew and it pressed, it was tight and compact. This word defines everything that I hate about people, crowds. Like, I love people. I hate being stuck where I can't move, Right? And so, any, speaking of this, where are my anti-large crowd people? I'm not alone. It's wonderful, right? So, like, again, this is me. Like, I hate crowds, especially when there's a large crowd and you can't move. Hence, Disney. 
all right? We had some family in town over, over Christmas and New Year's, and, and my brother-in-law said, he's like, I want to go to Toronto. And so I was like, all right, that's fine. I think it was the day after Christmas or two days later or whatever. And he's like, let's do the CN Tower. I'm like, all right. So you get in there, I'm like, hour-long wait, sweet. Uh, the tickets that we bought also gave us admission into the Ripley's Aquarium. That was the epitome of this, right? So there's always something in the crowd that drives you nuts. Everyone is pushing in against you, and there's always that one really sweaty guy that seems to smear everybody, right? That's your visual for the day, by the way, okay? And so, look, imagine the chaos. In, in, in the midst of this chaos, there's a sick woman in need of healing. So she sees Jesus, and she decides, look, I just need to touch his clothes, and I'm going to be healed. Simple, right? I just need to touch his clothes. Like, note Mark's words here, right? Both knew they needed Jesus. Jairus said, I just need you to touch my daughter. And she says, I just need to touch his clothes. Right? She knew. And so first things first, right? It says there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, verse 26, and who suffered much under many physicians and who had spent all she had and she was not better but rather worse. So what do we know about this woman? One, she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. I'm not gonna go into the realities of what that actually means. You can look that up on your own later. It wasn't good and it wasn't clean. It wasn't nice, okay? So, oh, so this woman has a discharge of blood, so she was ceremonial unclean. And if she had a discharge of blood for 12 years, which means she was ceremonial unclean for 12 years, which means she couldn't even go to the temple for the past 12 years. As a really loose tie-in here, it would be as if for some reason something kept you out of this building to come to this place for 12 years. Some of you guys would be like, all right, cool. Some of you guys, wrap your minds around that. You couldn't be with your church family. You couldn't be with your small group. You couldn't come and worship the Lord corporately for 12 years. So, so she was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. One commentary actually says she most likely had no husband because of this, and she probably was barren and had no children because of this. And so even so... Since she was unclean, this means that she couldn't even have any physical interaction with the people that she loved for 12 years. So imagine, where are the people that like to hug? All right? Imagine not being able to even hug the ones you love for 12 years because you are unclean and they don't want to be made unclean. 12 years without physical interaction, a handshake, a hug, anything. No sense of the touch of love. She must have felt helpless and hopeless, undesired and unwanted. And that's the reality of her initial condition. What else do we know? She suffered at the hands of physicians, so she was most likely abused and she was most likely taken advantage of. She now was broke. She had used everything that she had and that she may ever have to fix her condition. Nothing worked. So we know those things. And then the, the, the reality and the lastly is that she knew of this man Jesus. She heard of this man Jesus. She knew that he was different. She had heard of this Jesus and unsure of where her intentions came from. She at least believes that if she only touches his clothes because he has such great power, right, that, that if she can get close enough and get enough of his power, she will be made well. I couldn't imagine being at this play of just utter desperation. A very few of us know what this type of desperation looks like. 
with Jairus. None of us really know, few of us know what it means to be begging the Lord and pleading with the Lord to come and do something that, that you know, is, is, seems impossible. A lot of us don't know what it means to, to be separated from t- for 12 years and just, just having a hope of this healing. She's absolutely desperate. You know, there's actually one commentary that notes that, that this very, might, have, might have very well been a pagan superstition as to why she believed that if she just touched uh, the garments that she would, uh, she'd be healed. But here's the reality. Uh, the, <laughs> whether it was a pagan superstition or not, the, the place where she had her faith was placed in the right person. Amen? Right? So it doesn't matter where she got it from. The fact is she knew that, like, I'm putting my faith in everything. I'm putting all my eggs in this basket like I need Jesus. And so this is one thing that we note. So one thing we already noted about Jairus, but now we're going to note about the woman. The woman was desperate but concealing, and Jesus was compassionate and revealing. That's your one rhyme for the day. She was desperate and concealing. She, was, she wasn't out in the open going, let me touch you, because she knew that she was unclean. So she was probably slipping through the crowd and, and just trying to touch him in any way that she could. But we know that, that that's not the end of the story. It says, immensely, if I even just touch his garments, I'm going to be made well. Look, and she did it, and she grabbed him, and she touched the garments. In verse 29, immediately, immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Her healing was instantaneous. It was immediate. She felt it, and, and in faith, in her faith of touching Jesus, there is an exchange of unclean to clean. There is an exchange from broken to healed. And it took this woman to have enough faith to believe in the power of Jesus to begin a new life. See, Jesus knew he had been touched. He felt his power go out to her. And we see that in verse 30 and verse 31, he perceived in himself his power had gone out and he turned to the crowd and said, who touched my garments, right? So knowing it, he asked and, and I sometimes get angry at the disciples and uh, of course this would probably be my own reply and he says, who touched me? And the disciples in, a, you know, in, in my head in the snarky reply, like, do you really think we know who touched you? Like, do you see the people? It's, and I, I go back into like my Disney days, I'm getting bumped, I'm like, who just hit me, Right? And, and we're, we're walking through, and like, this is the, the, the question. But here's the thing. The question wasn't for the disciples. The question wasn't for the people. The question was for the woman. It was for her. It was to give her an opportunity to come face to face with who just healed her. See, the woman returns because she knew what had happened to her. She, she knew. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She was fearful. She could have ran like the wind. But she knew that she was healed and came back when called. And very well in the same way, Jesus knew who touched her, or to who touched him. His, his question, again, was more for the sake of her than anybody else. Like, she had come to the place of acknowledgement about why she felt her faith led her to touch Jesus. She feared because she was an unclean woman touching a holy, clean man. She was waiting for the public shame. This is why she came in fear and trembling. She knew what she had done. Jesus knew what she had done. And she's waiting to be publicly ostracized and publicly shamed. And we see the confirmation of her being a societal outcast, but because of who Jesus is, her fear was so quickly removed. Church, why? Why when we approach 
God, especially if we're a believer, why when we approach our Father are we so fearful? Like we're like, ah, he's going to smite me. No. See, this is the model that, that Jesus doesn't care about the place where you are when you come to him. He's going to listen to you. He's going to acknowledge you. He's going to make you clean. He's not going to leave you broken. He's not going to take back his power from you. He's going to allow you to bask in his glory. Her fear was quickly removed. And she explains the faith that she had in just touching his clothes. And Jesus, look, look, I want you to note this, church. He calls her daughter. Notice Mark's language. Twice he says, the woman. Mark's identifying her as the woman, the woman. And Jesus says, daughter. I want you to, to note that because there's no like throwaway words in the scriptures. And when we say that, it's like, the woman, the daughter, like this wasn't a pithy response, but an indication of new identity. The word daughter isn't something that you would use for a total stranger. The word daughter is one that you would use because of someone that you're welcoming into your family. And so it's a change of completely new identity. This, this is an indication that Jesus healed both her physically and her spiritually. He says, daughter, look, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. She didn't leave that interaction unchanged. But in the midst of this, verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is already dead. Right, so in the midst of celebration, news comes to Jairus that his daughter is dead. Like, and for me, I, I couldn't imagine this scenario. You've given up your public standing You've thrown everything you have out the window. Anything that people thought about you is completely gone because you were kneeling and crying at the feet of Jesus. And you're begging Jesus to come heal your daughter and you are elated now that he has come to and agreed to come heal your daughter. But on the way, there's a detour and Jesus stops to take care of another and you start to think, wait a minute, she didn't run to him. She, she didn't beg him. She just thought, if I just touch him, like, I, I put everything out on the line. You don't understand. Like, I went, I fought the crowd. I made a fool of myself to beg this man to come heal my daughter. She didn't do any of that. And she gets healed, and I'm still waiting? And as a side note, church, that's often us. Look at my testimony. Look at what God brought me through. How dare God save that person? They didn't do squat. I did everything. Church, when the moment we start thinking is about us and what we do and our testimony and how great we are, guess what? We've already missed the point. We missed the point. What it looks like to come to the Lord in faith. We have nothing to offer. It doesn't matter if we made a fool of ourselves and come to the Lord or if we snuck up behind him to touch his garment. It doesn't matter. Here's the thing. The reality is their faith still heals. The Lord in his graciousness and his mercy still finds it fit whether you came to him and pleaded or whether you snuck up behind him to touch his garment. His faith is greater than our faith and his healing is greater than anything we could ever accomplish. But here's the thing. Like, I feel for Jairus because so often like, that's my own human condition. I'm like, wait a minute, I, I just did it. You didn't beg. You didn't plead. You didn't cry out. Like, you didn't like, ask him to come with you. Like, you just did, did something small. What in the world? And so... We, we look at this, and, and like for me, like I, I, I'm looking at the, the, the frustration of Jairus here because like for me, I get, I get frustrated in traffic that's moving, and, and like I couldn't imagine this type of frustration. Like everything's on the line. Your daughter is dying. My child is dying, and, and I'm looking at this going like, uh, no, like you need to keep on coming. Keep on moving. Like why are you stop? Come on, stop, stop stopping. 
Come on. No, no, I didn't say stop. I said stop stopping. Come on. And we, we see. And again, this would make so people angry if this happened. But here's the thing. The natural question we ask is like, why is she more important than my situation? That's probably what's going through Josh's head. And we often think that our circumstances are final. Like we think the outcome is the outcome. And, and however, in a life with Christ, we need to discover the situations aren't always as they seem. Right? The frustration and the sadness of Jairus takes a turn even to disbelief now, right? And so, so by taking care of this woman and giving her new life, the life of his daughter was being taken, and the life of his daughter was ending, and this how it was, isn't how it wasn't supposed to be. You were supposed to show up and do the miracle work, Jesus, and, and we didn't know how long the interaction was between Jesus and, and this woman fully, but, but we also know that when we are in a tense situation, uh, that one second can feel like one hour, And so Jairus gets this ultimate bad news. His daughter has died. The response from those who came from the ruler's house are, are actually lightly debated because they say, why are you, or why bother, why trouble the teacher any further? Like, why, why trouble, like, and that, like, again, there's no throwaway lines in scripture, but we, we, we see this, that this interaction is actually lightly debated. It's like, like, is it like, why bother the teacher? It's not a line of like hope or concern for, for Jairus. It's, it's one of unbelief and sarcasm. Like, why bother him any further? Like, he, it's, it's done. It's, you can't, he can't do anything, man. Like, he, she's, she's gone. Like, come on. You know, it's, it's over. Like, leave him to himself. Like, he needs to go do other things now that are whatever, right? And, and he wasn't going to do anything anyway, so don't bother him anymore. Like, that's the idea. Or the second is a disbelief that anything else can be done. Now, if you ever walked with the Lord uh, for any amount of time and you are crying out and you're saying, like, it's impossible, how often is the impossible made possible because of what God has done, right? And so his response, Jesus' response says it all. Jesus overheard what these people were telling them, and he didn't ignore the reality of the daughter's death, but the, he ignored the finality of the daughter's death. He, he says, do not fear, right? Do not fear, only believe, right? And there's two types of fear in the, the, between these two stories, fear of being mocked and having to deal with shame, and fear of having to lose what's so held dearly to you. And so those are the two types of fear that we, we see within this, this text. Like the first fear is a result of, of what the woman has done of touching a holy man. And the second is of Jairus is the fear of what he cannot do, which is save his daughter. And so he says this. He allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Look, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So as he arrives, there are wailers. And in, in, the, in the New Testament way or in ancient antiquity, right, a lot of these wailers are actually paid professionally, right? And so if these wailers are here, chances are this has been a day or two uh, that they had enough time to go procure and pay some wailers to come and, and mourn with and for the family. And so we see this is like, they're, they're weeping and wailing loudly. Verse 39 says, And when they had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this, right? They laughed at him. Right? As he arrives, like, I would, I would just love to know the tone of Jesus here, really. Have you ever wanted to, like, like jump in? Like, well, how did Jesus say this, Right? Like, did he say this, like, the, you know, when he's kicking them out of the house and when he's telling them to leave, or, like, you know, they laughed at him and he put them all outside? Was it, like, the, the yes, child, please leave? 
like the, the so calm whatever that we always have, or, or was it, sorry, terrible accent, voice, whatever, right? Or was it, like, or was it like sarcastic? He's like, okay, get out, all right? Like, I always want to know the, the tone of these things. Like, she's not dead but sleeping, right? Yes, there is something wrong, but it's not the end of the story, right? And it's leading the laughter, verses 38, uh, 38 through 40, like, look at the complete 180 of these two emotions, from weeping to, to laughing, from being distraught over loss to near mockery of the very person that can heal, Right? Those mourners had no dog in the fight because if they did, they wouldn't be laughing. They would be rejoicing that there's someone here that claims what they can do. And they're waiting in anticipation that he would move. So he, he, uses the, he puts them out of the house. And, and actually, there's a commentary that notes this, right? That, that the same phrasing that he uses to put them out of the house is, is very similar to the one that uh, the Greek phrase that Jesus uses to actually expel the demon from the man in, in Mark chapter 5, in the beginning of Mark chapter 5. Right? So in the intimate setting of, of these three disciples, a broken-hearted mother and a father spoke, he spoke life back into this little girl. He said, Talitha Kuma, which means this translation here says, Little girl, I say to you, arise. In a modern context, and, and kind of the, the feel of this is literally like, hey, honey, get up. Hey girl, sweetheart, honey, get up. Now it's the, it's the understanding and the reality of a parent walking up to their kid in the morning. Now, if you live in a house of flat chaos, you might not understand this example, okay? But, but walking up and, and saying in a soft, tender, and loving way, hey, wake up. It's time to wake up, right? That's the, the tenderness that he has and says that she woke up and started walking. And Jesus said, feed her. Jesus said not to, not to tell anyone not to hold on to a messianic secret, but to allow faith to grow. It wasn't like, don't tell anyone who I am because I don't want them to know who I am. No, no, no. It's a, a moment to allow faith to grow. Jesus shows concern for the, for the daughter's physical need by feeding her and the reality of her being alive. Jesus is pointing to the fact of like, I didn't just do something wonky. I'm not messing with your eyes. Feed your daughter. She's hungry. Fight away. Feed your daughter. She's alive. So that's the, the text that we walk through. That's the, the understanding. But the question is, all right, so what does that mean for us right now, 2020, right? What does that mean for us? Here's the first thing. Simple faith can lead to life-changing things. Simple thing, a, a simple faith can lead to life-changing things. In both of these narratives, we see the need of coming to the Lord in faith. And notice in each encounter, the encounter with Jairus, the encounter with the woman, neither one of them had anything to bring or to give. They saw the desperate state of what they were in, in which they were, and they acted accordingly to the only way that they knew how. Hey, church, this is the gospel, right? This is the gospel. Like We are needy and empty and we need saving. We have nothing to offer and no way to pay back what Jesus has done. Nothing. And we grow from there. Jesus isn't concerned about your understanding of him yet if you don't yet know him. It grows from there. Too many of us try to learn our theology and perfect our theology before we, sa we sacrifice our lives to Jesus. Trust me, church, when you sacrifice your life to Jesus and you look into what he says, you develop pretty good theology. Also, this is why we have one another in the church to help build us up and steer us where we might be seeing off. 
How simple, how simple a request that was made and Jesus honored it. And, and, and this is where I just started thinking, like, why do we overcomplicate our requests to God? We overcomplicate our, our faith. Jesus honors, uh, Jesus honors the imperfect faith as long as he is what we put our faith in and our complete faith in. He doesn't understand a, expect a, a final understanding of who he is, but rather he expects us to know that he is the only one that can save and the only way that we can be saved. And so I start asking questions about like, how are we like Jairus and how are we like this woman? And I just start saying, like, do we see our, our desperate need for a savior? Do we see our desperate need for a healer? Do we see our desperate need for a redeemer? Like, do we see these things? Not just concern for the physical. Like, my concern, honestly, here's one of my concerns deep down, right? That if Jesus was simply a physical healer but did not demand any type of spiritual change, we would be okay with that. That's my concern. If we could just... You know, do the Aladdin, rub the genie in the bottle, Robin Williams in a blue form comes out, 25, whatever, 25,000 years and give you such a crink in the neck, that line, we'd be like, sweet. But we use Jesus like that in our own lives so often. We just want to rub the Jesus genie bottle and have him come out, fulfill our wish, and then, hey, we're done now. You can go back till I need you again. We need to realize our helpless state in our broken life. And like Jairus, we need someone to hear our plea and respond. Like the girl, we need someone to call us to life. And like the woman, we, we need someone to make us clean and show compassion to the outcast. We need someone to make us clean and Jesus has done these things. Nothing will change spiritually within you if you don't realize these things. If you don't know that you're not needy and helpless, if you don't know that you're dead, if you don't know that you're dirty, guess what? You can't look and ask Jesus to help you with those things and to heal you from those things and to fix your brokenness. See, Jesus makes us hopeful. Jesus makes us alive and Jesus makes us clean. And so let's quickly look at Jairus. His, his faith and, and his humility allowed Jesus an open door to come work in a miraculous way. I think we can be okay with that. Like even with a delay and the news of certain death, Jesus still knows the end result. Jesus is not on our timeline, church, and I'm thankful for that. He knows what he is doing. He knows when he's gonna do it, how much time he has. He knows what he's gonna do. And so this is when we stop saying, no, this is final, and we turn our requests to the Lord and say, make it unfinal. Whatever we consider gone, broken, whatever, the Lord can heal and the Lord can fix. And so he is not a simple doctor who can only see and understand the here and now. He's a perfect physician who knows all, and in this case, it was his will Jesus' will to bring her back to life. And when it isn't his life, and it will in his life, like we have to trust that he is still in control. That's hard to say. When God doesn't work and move in the ways that we need him to work and move, his will isn't what we want. We, church, have to be okay with still putting our faith and trust into the one who knows beginning, present, and end. Knowing that that his reality, 
and what his will is, we have to come to a place where it's okay with us. That's hard to do. I'm not going to sit there and play it up. Well, that's so simple. It's not. It's ridiculously difficult. But here's the thing. Jesus could have, could have done what the Pharisees would have done. Tell them to go clean themselves up. He, he could have said, come back more presentable. He, he could have said, go make your offering and get off your knees and quit crying. Go do something about it. And then we can all talk about what, what they might do. Oh, we might could do this. We might could travel there in a day or two. But Jesus got up and was immediate. He didn't do that. Jairus was desperate and asked in faith, and Jesus moved immediately. Let's look at the woman. Let's look at the daughter. What she doesn't assume is that Jesus would know. She, she wanted just to be lost in the crowd, be healed, and wanted to move on her way. Again, some of us there. We don't want to interact with Jesus. We just simply want to slide in and, and get his blessing and leave. She initially, if you look at that text, she initially had no desire outside of herself in that interaction. It was, I want to be healed. I'm going to touch. If it happens, great. If not, well, I didn't lose anything. So the thing is, like, how often is that us? Like, we want the benefits of Jesus without the, like, and we want the healing of Jesus without having to come face to face with Jesus. Right? Like, we hope to get enough of Jesus to help us, but not enough of Jesus to cross his path. You know, like, do, do, here's the thing, church. Like, do we want Christ or just the things that Christ can, can give? And that's the, that's the scary place to be. Right? Like, we, we only want, like, only wanting that which Christ gives rather than willing, wanting him altogether is actually what creates in us a weak faith. And in creating us a weak faith, it's a pseudo-faith. It's a faith built on what you can get rather than who he actually is, right? And I say, what happens to this type of faith when things don't go our way? What happens to that type of faith when, when we have a crisis of belief? What happens to that kind of faith when things begin to fall apart? We question his goodness. We question if he's actually real. We question if he's listening to us, right? Or that we lack something or he hasn't given us enough of something. That's how we respond to those moments, and in, that, in doing so, it creates in us a weak faith. And I love this. Like J.D. Greer actually says, that here, also poses a theological question. The text says the power went out from him and not sent out from him. So the text is passive, right? And we start asking, like, so is God not in control of his own miracles, right? Is God sovereign over the outpouring of his power? If someone can just touch him, then how come, how come a bunch of people just didn't do that? If that's how it worked, touch your garment, get healed. And we have to know that, yes, he is sovereign over the outpouring of his power. The text is to show us something about faith and the faithfulness of Jesus, not about just touching the Lord. See, he responds to faith so reliably, it's almost just a response and a reflex of him. The crowd was pressing in on him. I'm sure he's not the only one that got touched or bumped, but he healed the one who intentionally reached out in faith. I love uh, this quote here by Danny Aiken. It says this, in both these stories, her gender, her namelessness, her, her uncleanness, and an impossible condition did not stop her from experiencing the healing touch of the great physician. That tells me it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you think you are. It doesn't, doesn't matter what you think you are and, and what you have done. It doesn't matter. All you need is to respond to him in faith. All you need, it doesn't matter. You can replace yourself there, right? Your gender, your namelessness, your uncleanness, and your impossible condition does not stop you from experiencing the healing touch of the great physician. 
God still moves. God still heals. God still saves church. And I think that we have come to a place in church where we just say like, yeah, we know that, but it really doesn't affect me. But it should. It should. And that's the reality. Here's the, here's the second point. Look, our staying faith requires us to dig deep into the gospel. So staying faith, it requires us to go deeper into the gospel. We all have, a, have this picture of who, who God is and what God should do. And honestly, church, rarely does this picture involve us dying to ourselves. It's about our own wills and our own desires. And too often, look, how are we with God is, is one of a child who tries to negotiate their way every time they get told what to do. God says, do this. And we go, yeah, okay, okay, I just, I just need to. Or God says, do this. Okay, okay, like, that's fine. I hear you, but first, but first you need to. Or we say, like, fine, but when I'm done doing. And that's just the reality. Jesus proved in this text that he is not like other teachers. He broke the law by making himself ceremonially unclean, by touching the undead, or by touching the dead, and by touching the blood. But guess what? He was still pure and he was still perfect. He was not made unclean by uncleanness. Faith that sustains us requires us to dig deeper into who God is, what his character is, and what our sin has done to put us in our present condition. So, if we believe God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and this Jesus is still willing and wanting to, to save and do mighty work in our lives, we need to have faith that he is exactly who he said he is and that he is worthy to do all we could ever ask and more. When he fixes the physical, we rejoice because he is gracious. When he doesn't, we rejoice because we know all things work according to his will. When he fixes the spiritual, we, we rejoice because he is savior, but, but here's the thing. At that moment, when he doesn't, we don't lose hope, but we pray all the more that his mercy would continue and prove itself over and over. See, I look at this text, and this is the God we serve, and this is the God that we know. And for, for those who, who don't know him in this way, he still invites you today to know him in this way. Jairus and the woman didn't know where their story would end, but they, I guarantee that they knew where it was and that they needed Jesus. Jesus didn't send them away to go figure themselves out and come back and make, make a more presentable way. He, he healed them in their brokenness that they would see his true glory, that they would see who he actually is. Jairus and the woman knew where they were. And the story hasn't changed. Like the desperate, the needy, the broken, the prideful, the, the arrogant, whatever it is, we all need Jesus. And so this is where we say, we invite you today. If you're not a believer, if you don't understand, or you don't know this Jesus, we invite you to begin to know him. He doesn't demand you know everything, okay? He doesn't demand that you have a perfect theology. He doesn't demand that you bring something to him and that you are a better person trying to come to him. He demands faith that causes you to come to him. It's simple. Simple faith leads to life-changing things and that this staying faith requires us to go deeper into the gospel to see who he truly is. He demands the faith that says, I have nothing except broken. But I know 
that Jesus, this Jesus, can save me. So we invite you this morning, if you're not a believer, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, look at this text and decide, is he worth following? I would say if you actually think about it and truly believe, then yes, he is. If you are a believer this morning, be reminded of how you came to faith in Christ and continue to pursue him, diving deeper into the gospel that in a moment of a crisis of faith or a crisis of belief, that your faith and his faithfulness would sustain you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. God, you are worthy. You are, you are great, God. You are faithful when we are faithless, God. And God, we just pray. God, we pray that in this text, in these moments, God, we would just see you that we would just see your glory, God, that we would just see your mercy, God, we would just see your unending compassion, God. God, we need you and we love you. God, I pray for those in this room who are sitting on the fence right now, being like, ah, I'm not sure, God. I pray that you would just allow their mind's eye to open to see the glory of who you are, God. Not, not thinking they have to have everything figured out, but they just need to come to you in faith, God, and from there, you'll take it over. So God, we just pray that you would move and you would... God, just open our hearts to you. Allow us to glory in you. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.